Now, last Thursday, my uh, son and I happened to uh, watch a documentary um, entitled "Meet Me, Meet Me on the Bridge." Don't know if you're familiar with that. It was a tear-jerking documentary about Katie Pollard. Katie, uh, slide comes up, is actually a Chinese girl who was left at the market when she was three days old uh, because her parents. Did not want to abort her, and cannot afford to pay fines during China's one-child policy. The girl Katie was adopted by American parents、uh, who brought her up in Michigan, but her birth parents, who left her, did not really abandon her. They left a note along with her for the one who would pick up the girl, and the note says, "Next slide." In Chinese, let me translate for you.、It、says thank you for saving our little daughter and taking her into your care. If the heavens have feelings, if we are brought together by fate, then let us meet again on the broken bridge in Hangzhou on the morning of the Qixi Festival in ten or twenty years from now. Katie's birth mother, Su Li Da, shared that. Since 2004, I have visited the broken bridge every year, and I knew there wasn't much hope, but I still kept waiting. I often stayed at the lake for the whole day. She shared. See, the parents did not give up, and when the news picked up their story, they aired it on national TV. On the other side of the world. Katie, who is now grown up, watched it, and it reported that Katie realized how much her birth parents loved and cared about her. She learned that they felt guilty in abandoning her, but she felt guilty that she had ignored them as well for all these years. It was almost like she had abandoned them too. And she realized that there was literally、uh, another family on the other side of the world that cared and loved her very much. So finally, after more than twenty years, Katie flew to China. Next slide, and met her biological family at the broken bridge because her parents never gave up. Her parents sought her, and her parents found her. You should watch the documentary. It was a heartwarming, lost and found story. Next slide. And here is Katie's dad giving her a very thick red hong pao. Why? Because every year he would set aside the same amount that he would give Katie's older sister, hoping that one day their daughter would come and collect it. Now everybody loves a lost and found story, and that is why Jesus has a few lost and found stories as well. And the best is the well-known story of the、uh, prodigal son. But it is not just a story; it is the reality of the loving God who is seeking the lost. Lost not because He has abandoned us, but Lost because we abandon him, 
And he sends his son Jesus, whose mission was clearly to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is the king who saves. He is the king who rewards. And he is the king who judges. So our passage today uh, begins in uh, chapter 19. Chapter 19, Jesus had just declared that it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is difficult for man. It is impossible even. But it is not impossible for God. And the immediate living example is a rich man by the name of Zacchaeus, which we read in chapter 19. And who is Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus? Well, he is the rich man whom everybody knows, but whom everybody does not expect to see in the kingdom of God. Why? Because this rich man is a tax collector, and he is a chief tax collector at that. Now, people generally do not like tax collectors. For those of you working at the IRA, sorry. I once heard uh, a BBC report uh, uh, on taxation in countries like India and Somalia. So in India, people were unwilling to pay taxes because the roads were always in a state of disrepair. There's always potholes everywhere. And in Somalia, it was worse. In Somalia, taxmen were slaughtered by village people. Now, even in countries where taxes are really working for you, nobody opens a letter from IRA with excitement. You don't, right? I recently received one. Nobody opens a letter from IRAS with, uh, with fondness, right? People generally do not like tax collectors. But tax collectors in Jesus' days belong to a different category. See, they are despised because they are collecting money to pay Rome. A tax collector is a fellow Jew collecting from his own people to pay the colonizer. Now, I read somewhere that tax collection is an occupation that a Jew acquires through bidding. So he makes a bid to the Roman government to collect taxes for them. And when an agreed amount is reached, the tax collector is uh, now engaged to collect an agreed amount of tax uh, from his own people living in a designated area. Now, Jericho, here in chapter 19, our scholars tell us, was an important trade route. And so the amount of taxes collected here is huge. Now, tax collectors then enriched themselves because they had the power to extort people, to extort taxpayers. You see, they were given soldiers to escort them. And Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, he is not just a tax collector. He is, according to Luke, the chief tax collector. So people working under him are the tax men, but he is the tax lord. When Jesus was passing by Jericho, Zacchaeus wanted to see him. Now, he must have heard of him. And, you know, in a comical way, Luke had to tell us that the man was short. See, he had to climb a sidewalk tree because the crowd was blocking his view. And you read this portion and you ask, why does, glue, why does Luke include an 
unglam detail in the story. See, Luke's description and details gave us no shortage of children's songs, right? That made fun of, uh, of uh, Zacchaeus' height. Songs like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Or the Getty songs, Little Zach, Little Zach, where are you, Little Zach? You see, you can't see him, he's little. And so why would Luke insert this unglam detail on Zach? You know, among the, the staff, we would sometimes make fun of Pastor Joe. And we would say things like, in the office, because, you know, we're separated by cubicles, we would say, hey, Pastor Joe, where are you? Please stand. And he would reply and said, I am already standing. And we would share this with other people, not to embarrass Joe, but to actually highlight that we pastors could laugh together because we love one another. Don't we, Pastor Joe? That, however, could not be the case here with Luke's description. See, Zach was short. He couldn't see from the crowd. And so he had to climb up the tree. Perhaps Luke wanted to stress that the powerful tax collector was powerful, but not respected among the people. No one would make way for him to get a good view. Perhaps, too, he wanted to highlight that this man would do anything, even if it were unglam, just to see Jesus. So Jesus comes to the spot. The Lord looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And Zacchaeus hurriedly came down to receive Jesus joyfully. Now, anybody would be excited to have royalty visit his home. I read that Queen Elizabeth visited Singapore in 1972, and she paid a visit to residents in a Topayo HDB flat. And one family who received the queen was very, very excited, so excited that they actually kept the glass from which the queen drank from. And so in 2006, when the queen visited them again, they served her water from the same glass. The same glass that they kept over the years. Shows you how glad the family was to have royalty visit them. But Zacchaeus' joy couldn't be just royalty exhilaration. Consider, here is a tax collector working for the enemy government. And he is honoring the would-be king who is opposed to the Roman government, his employers. Consider, too, that Zacchaeus is hosting the one who would take away his lucrative occupation, his lucrative business, the moment he is crowned king. The joy of Zacchaeus having the King Jesus visit his place is not just fanaticism, my friends. It's not the excitement one experiences in meeting a celebrity. It is rather the joy of surrendering sin, the joy of bowing down to a new king. It is the joy of salvation. And here is the evidence. Next slide. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, 
And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus tells Jesus. Now, Jewish law required only repaying 120% for fraud. But Zacchaeus upped it to 400%. On top of that, unlike the rich young ruler in chapter 18 who refused to part with his riches, Zacchaeus gave half his bank account that very day for the poor. You see, Zacchaeus didn't just offer royalty a glass of water. No, he offered restitution. He offered half of his riches. He offered his worship. And Jesus did confirm the salvation of Zacchaeus. Next slide. Jesus says in verse 9, Today, salvation has come to this house since he, Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Zacchaeus was confirmed and assured to be the son of Abraham because Jesus sought him. Jesus saved him. Now in contrast, the Jews who took pride in their lineage from Abraham did not have such an assurance. John the Baptist had told them, next slide, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So is Jesus your king? Are you a son of Abraham? Jesus came to seek and save the lost because we are all lost in our sin. We are all unrighteous in our ways. We have defrauded our neighbors. We have closed our eyes on the poor and even exploited them. Did you read of the abuse that was done to Miss Piang, the uh, Myanmar domestic helper who was beaten chained to the window, starved until she weighed only 24 kilos, until she died. You read such news and you ask, how could we as a nation, well-educated, how could we as a nation financially capable, a nation who with the highest perfect IB score, how could we as a nation abuse the poor? Abuse the helpless foreigner in our midst? And the answer is, it is sin. It is sin. We have read two of scandals in the news of how religious leaders pray and abuse women. Why? Same answer. It is sin. Religious leaders in Jesus' time devoured widows' homes. False teachers in Paul's time worm they, their way into the homes of vulnerable women. It is sin. So yes, there is a need to relook into systems of accountability. Yes, the full force of the law must come down to keep evil in check, but laws and systems, they are not powerful enough to save one from the clutches of sin.
And that is why you and I need Jesus. Jesus came to save us from sin. He took upon himself the full weight of our sins. He came to give us new life under his rule. Just look at the new life of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to make us, who are not sons of Abraham, now God's children through faith in his Son. For Abraham is the father of all of us who believe in Jesus. That is the mission of Jesus, to call the unrighteous, to call sinners to repentance. So has Jesus come into your life? Has he come into your house as he did to Zacchaeus' house? Did you receive the king joyfully? Joyful that he's taken away your sin? Joyful that he is now your new king? Joyful that you've turned away from sin and made restitution and now do the will of the king? Jesus is the king who saves. And what else can we know about this king? Moving on from verses 12 and following, Jesus now tells a parable. Now, we look at many parables in the gospel, and we know full well that parables are stories that employ fictitious characters. Uh, they're fictitious, but what the interesting thing is that any resemblance to a real person, the original hearers, that is, any similarities to original listeners is not coincidental, but they're actually intentional. That is why listeners who get the drift of the parable, they are encouraged. At times they know they are warned. Still, at other times, they are angered by it. And that is the purpose of the Lord in telling parables. He wants to solicit a response. So here Jesus tells a story of a noble man who's going to a faraway place to receive his kingdom. That is, he is going to a place for his coronation, and then he would come back as king. Now in the background of that trip, two things were happening. His servants who stayed behind, they were given minas to engage in business while the king while the king-to-be is away. Second activity that is happening is the formation of a disgruntled group of people who did not want this nobleman to be king. So they send a delegation to, uh, in today's language, to form a picket, to stage a protest, to lobby against the crowning, against this man's coronation. Now, historians tell us that this parable is actually based on a true-to-life account. The original hearers must have recalled Herod Archelaus. Herod Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great. You see, Archelaus sailed all the way to Rome to make a claim for kingship from Caesar Augustus. But in Rome, we were told, an opposition group meets him. And this group is, um, was made up of Jews plus his brother, Herod Antipas. The Jews has had bad experience with uh, Archelaus, so they didn't want him to be king. On the other hand, Antipas, Antipas 
wanted to challenge his right to kingship. Now you ask, why does Jesus borrow this not-so-liked account for his parable? Well, the answer is Jesus does that from time to time. I mean, remember another, remember another parable? The parable of the dishonest manager? The parable of the shrewd manager? The actions of the manager in that parable are not commendable at all. And yet Jesus uses such a parable because it has an important point that he can use to teach. It is that the shrewdness of the manager on using wealth that is vanishing. And Jesus' point was that the disciples must learn the wisdom of using mammon for gospel purposes. And here in this parable, Jesus draws a few important points. Firstly, God's kingdom is not going to appear at once. See, just because Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, the people ought not to think that God's reign is going to be established soon. Nope. Uh, the people ought not to think that Rome will be crushed so soon, that enemies will be subdued. Nope. The people are, ought not to think that Jerusalem will finally rise to power. No, not so fast. Because God's kingdom in its fullness is yet to appear. Jesus must die on the cross. He must rise from the dead. He must go back to the Father. He must sit at His right hand. And He will take a long time before returning. Just like the noble man going to a distant country for his coronation in days when they had no modern-day transportation. And so while he is away, what are his subjects supposed to do? Well, the parable here teaches us to be faithful to the task entrusted to us, to work faithfully with what has been entrusted to us. And one example of that inescapably is with the use of God's money. You see, Luke, the gospel writer, mentions money, riches, wealth so many times. You hear that from the parable of the shrewd manager. You hear that from the parable of the rich fool. One parable warns, tells us to use money wisely for gospel purposes. The other parable warns us against the foolishness of stacking up wealth for ourselves without regard for God. Jesus is warning, remember, that it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom. There are so many warnings about money, about riches about wealth. Because how we spend our money, how we use our money, reflects our relationship with God. So here in this parable, each servant was given a mina, which is equivalent to about a hundred days of wage. And upon the return of the king, all servants were summoned for reporting. First reported, making a 1,000% increase of the one mina entrusted to him. Well done, he was told, and he was rewarded and promoted to be governor of 10 cities. The second servant reported a 500% increase, and he was rewarded to be governor of five cities. See, the king's reward corresponds, we learn from this parable, 
to the faithfulness of each servant. And the reward, at least revealed to us in this parable, seems to be more work, <laughs> more responsibilities. How do you like that? See, the world tells us, don't be ke kyang, right? In English, if I get it correctly, don't be Mr. or Miss Save the Day person because you'd be given more work. I mean, how would you like it if your boss were to say at your appraisal, wow, you've done so much, let me give you more work. I'll reward you with more responsibilities. But friends, worry not, because this is a scene when the kingdom comes in its fullness. This is a scene when perfection appears. And so it is not unimaginable that you and I, when rewarded with more responsibilities, will gladly receive them as a reward. But the question for now is led by what happens with the third servant. This servant came to the king to return no more than the one mina that he was given. Why no more than the one mina? Was it because of economic downturn? Was it because of inflation? Slide. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. You read this and you say, wow. I mean, this servant even had the audacity. He had the guts to say that to the king. Well, that's the point. You see, he says he is afraid of the king, but he's not fearful of the king. He does not fear him. Moreover, his description of the king showed him that he did not really know the king. Because the king, after all, was far from being a hard man or a severe man. Far from it. On the contrary, the king was a generous man. And what's the proof? Well, he did not take the 15 minas from servant number one, from servant number two. No, he rewarded them. He promoted them to be cabinet members. One, a mayor of 10 cities, because now mayors are in the news, right? Mayor of 10 cities. And the other, the mayor of five cities. The king was not a hard man, a sum would think so. This third servant, I think, represents those who have an association with Jesus but would give the king only half-hearted devotion. This third servant would represent servants who would serve not joyfully but serve resentfully. But you know, my description isn't far from, isn't, isn't really accurate. It is, it is very toned down because Jesus would call such a servant wicked, wicked servant. And as a listener to this parable today, which servant resembles you? See, parables are intended to solicit a response. Are you encouraged? Do you feel warned? Or are you angered? The king 
who seeks and saves the lost desires a response of repentance. Now, you must have heard of the story about a dying man. There was a story told of a dying man who tasked his building contractor to build one last project for him, for him to enjoy before he passes away. And the contractor knew he's, he's not going to be paid more because he's worked for this man in the past. And so he decided to do a shoddy piece of work. He bought the cheapest taps. He bought the cheapest tiles. He bought the low-quality furnishings because he thought to himself, well, the man won't live, won't live long to see the house completed. But the man did live long to see the building done. And to his shock, to his surprise, the dying man willed his last house to the builder. Now, there's a saying that you get what you paid for. Well, in the kingdom of God, you get what you worked for. Will you be the servant who will get his one mina taken away? I pray not. I pray not. You know, just the other night, I was editing a video of a talk that a, a few of us are giving uh, at the uh, chapel at school chapel on Friday to the students and the teachers. You know how painstaking it is to type subtitles in a video? And I must confess that I, while I was doing that at 9.30, 10 in the evening, after a long day, I did entertain the thought, will the subtitles really benefit the hearers? Uh, are they really necessary? Will they really matter in the grand scheme of things? Well, if putting them, putting them in, painstakingly is my act of service to the king, it does matter in the grand scheme of things. It matters in eternity. Our king is a king who rewards because he is not a hard man. On the contrary, he is generous and he will reward the faithful. And my last point, the king who rewards, the king who saves, is yet the king who judges. So in this same parable, in verse 27, the parable ends, but as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. There is the certainty of judgment for those who reject Jesus on the day he returns as king. And the last portion of this passage that we are looking at today belabors this, this truth. When Jesus was about to reach Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples to uh, get him a colt. And it tells you that Jesus is indeed king. Why? Because he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah. Slide comes up. Where Zechariah chapter 9 verse uh, 9 tells us, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous 
and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Luke, the gospel writer, includes for us intriguing details on the acquisition of the colt. If you've read that, next slide. Jesus gives a command, instructs his disciples, and says, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And that was how they got the colt for Jesus. Now I read this account and I imagine things. And that account resembles a scene from an espionage movie, doesn't it? You know, espionage movie where there is a prearranged code that is to be uttered in order for you to secure an equipment or something. And in this, case, the, in this case, the code phrase is, the Lord has need of it. Or it could be a scene from a con movie where one utters a phrase that tricked the owners into releasing the animal. Uh, because the cult, we were told, cult in particular, has several owners. You see, the owners of the cult. All the owners could be addressed as Lord, meaning Master. That could be a possibility. And yet there's another possibility, is that Jesus was actually a co-owner of the cult. He must have paid a timeshare for the use of the cult. Now, whichever it is, because Luke does not explain it to us, I believe his intention was to show that the king's entrance to Jerusalem was predetermined by Jesus himself. Jesus is not the accidental king. He is not king because the crowd wanted him to be king. He is not king because his popularity got him votes. No, he is king because he is the king. When his dis disciples shouted, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It brought a lot of concern to the Pharisees because these cries could be seen as cries that incite rebellion against Rome. And so they said, shut him up, teacher. But Jesus would say no because this declaration is true and cannot be muffled. Jesus is indeed the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He is truly the king of peace as declared by the angels at his birth. However, the peace that Jesus brings is not the peace the crowd longed for. At the end of this passage, Jesus would weep for Jerusalem, the city of, pun intended, peace. Because the people would reject their king. You see, the people wanted world peace, but Jesus' mission is not world peace, but it is to bring peace between God and man. 
That is God's peace plan. And when God's peace plan is rejected for another, there can be no peace. And the predicted destruction of Jerusalem here in verses 41 to 44 is just a sneak preview of the judgment that comes upon the wicked, upon Jesus' return. So why did the crowd reject Jesus in the end? Well, because they saw that Jesus is not the king they dreamed him to be. He is the king who befriended tax collectors and sinners. He is the king whose kingdom is uh, delayed, taking a long time in coming. He is the king who has a different peace program. Jesus did not come to further your old agenda. Jesus came because his agenda was to reconcile us back to God and usher in his good rule into our lives. That is the peace that he brings. And yet many wanted Jesus for a different kind of peace. They want the king to save them from their troubles, but they don't want him to rule over their lives. They want the king to give them health and wealth, and when those are gone, so is their worship of the king. They want the king to grant them their heart's desires, and when they do not materialize, they go shop for another God. Jesus did not come to further your agenda or my agenda. His mission was to seek and save the lost. Make us God's children by giving us the needed peace between God and us. Jesus' mission was to save a people unto himself who will serve him faithfully until his return. Is Jesus your king? Let us pray. We give thanks, Father, for the gift of your Son, the King Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost. And so we pray that we will never reject this King. We pray that we will receive him into our hearts and allow him, let him rule over us, usher in his good rule over our lives. And while we await of his glorious return, we pray, O Lord, that you empower us to be faithful in the tasks that he has entrusted us to do, so that we will be found faithful upon the return of the king when he brings in the kingdom of God. For this we ask in Jesus' name.